Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I have to acknowledge, excuse me, that this is one of those days when we could start in one of five, six, seven different directions. There's so much happening. Uh, uh, I don't want to keep you in suspense uh, too much longer (laughs) with the issue we are going to start with. So let me get the panel introduced, and then we will uh, talk. Um, Greg Bluestein is with me, as he is on Wednesdays. He's a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now an analyst for NBC's uh, uh, various news properties, and the author of a book coming out March 22nd, on the Georgia election of 2020. Greg, you've got to be getting more and more excited about the release of the book. Um, I can't wait. It's, it's less than three weeks, and I know we are we are involved in a panel together on March 24th. Yeah. It's almost sold out at the Marcus Jewish Community Center, so uh, there's only a few tickets Great. left. Right, so there are se- se- seven, eight people who've decided to sign up for that uh, <laughs> pro- program, <laughs> They told me this morning it is about 15 tickets away from being sold out, so Wow, terrific. It's the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival out at the uh, Marcus Community Center, right? You got it. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm, we got a lot of time before we get to that to, to talk with you about many issues, including uh, the book. Um, Steve Fennessy joins us. Steve Fennessy, <clears throat> excuse me, a long career in uh, journalism in Atlanta. He's working at GPB right now where he's been doing a terrific podcast um steve you're you, you've got a podcast coming up friday on an issue that we on this show have not given any attention to and it's one i think we should talk a little about it yeah my guest on friday's georgia today is mary landers who covers the environment for the current which is an online news organization that covers coastal georgia and what what she's talking about what we had her on to discuss was this proposal by an alabama company to, to mine for what a mineral called titanium dioxide on basically the border, uh, the eastern uh, border of the Okefenokee Swamp, which has environmentalists, not to mention residents and politicians, alarmed at the prospect because the, the ridge where they would be mining acts as a kind of buffer to the swamp. And so there's concerns that if they're digging that up, that it could affect uh, the, the wetland that, that is the swamp. It's a really fascinating discussion we had. Um, when does the podcast actually drop? Friday afternoon. Okay, terrific. Um, I'm I want to listen because we really need to address that on the show. It's been a controversy for quite some time uh, among environmentalists uh, in Georgia. Uh, we're also joined today uh, by Raul Bali, who is the political reporter for WABE Radio. Our friends, our neighbors, uh, a little bit across town from us. Um, Raul, you you know what? The last time you were on the show, I didn't do with you what I typically like very much to do, which is give a new panelist just an opportunity to say a few things about uh, who they are, their career. So 
you've been a journalist in Georgia for, what, a couple of decades at least, covered politics here for a very long time for a number of news organizations. Uh, you're on the board of the Atlanta Press Club, um, among other things. What, what else should we know about you? Well, I'm from Augusta, Georgia. That's where I grew up. That's uh, when I go home. I still go to, to mom's house in Augusta. And and I think the most common question I get from people is, is why have you bounced around so much in your career? And that's because uh, I married Army. And so my wife was in the military for for 12 years and then, and then four years of med school. So that's the reason I bounced around to D.C., back to Augusta, and um, now I'm back in Atlanta, WABE. So, uh, so that's kind of the most common question, why have I been around, you know, at different places, but I worked with you guys when I was at Lawmakers on GPB, which I love doing, and um, we'll actually be appearing on Crossover Day on GPB Lawmakers as well. Ah, terrific. Well, again, we're very happy to uh, have you with us on Political Rewind. Uh, Greg Lucien, let's start with uh, the ruling uh, that came down from uh, federal district judge Steve Jones. He has been hearing a case, a challenge to Georgia's congressional maps uh, by plaintiffs who contend that uh, the way that Republicans in the legislature drew the maps, it dilutes uh, African-American voting strength. There were 500,000 new African-Americans who showed up in the census over the last census, and yet um, the, uh, the maps do, do, not, do not, in fact, offer opportunities for uh, uh, black Georgians to add uh, representation from a, an African-American in any new district. But Steve Jones said, I've got to stop this case for the time being, right? Yeah, he said that it's way too close to the May 24th primaries to start redrawing districts and to, and to delay those primaries. Um, qualifying starts on Monday. Uh, you know, voters would be, it would lead to some voter confusion or, or lengthy delays in the Georgia voting process. This was very little. This was not a surprise, especially given the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on a similar case in Alabama, uh, where where the, the high court also ruled it was too close to the Alabama elections um, to delay and to, and to change the maps. But what is important here is this does not rule on the merits of of the case. Uh, the judge wrote that under the specific circumstances of this case, the court finds that the proceeding with the enacted maps. Uh, is the right decision, but it's a difficult decision. Basically, he said there was standing, there was cause for concern uh, from the plaintiffs that the maps violated the Voting Rights Act, that there was a history of voting discrimination in Georgia, that there's questions about whether there are no, enough black voters to constitute an additional district. So the judge didn't, didn't rule on the underlying uh, causes and merits of the case, and he will soon. That, so that, that initial case is still moving forward. He just ruled that it's it's not enough. There's not enough reason to delay the primaries. Uh, Raul, uh, the uh, uh, we should point out that when the United States Supreme Court uh, ruled that Alabama, the challenge Alabama's congressional lines could not go forward at at the time, the timing of it couldn't go forward because of the same thing too close to the election. They overturned a district court in Alabama, which said, no, we ne you need to draw new maps. Your maps are not uh, legally drawn. And the U.S. Supreme Court uh, got intense criticism from many voting rights 
groups which felt that this was an intrusion again of politics into Supreme Court decisions. Here was the interesting thing of how that was received at the state capitol. When when that decision came down, I had a, a, a Democratic lawmaker say, I don't think anything's going to happen with the Georgia map. That's, that was the reaction from them. And then last week, we heard in a press conference with Democratic lawmakers making the turn, like instead of challenging the map, Democrats should focus on running the maps that they have. They've already made that turn. That was the turn that we saw last week kind of in reaction ahead of this ruling even coming down. Steve? Yeah, I think it's also important to think about our neighbors to the north in North Carolina, where there are two courts, including the North Carolina Supreme Court, that has basically said the Republican, the Republican redrawn map is, is not fair. And so sending it back basically to the drawing board. And interestingly enough, the Republicans there want to find some relief at the U.S. Supreme Court, which, of course, raises the question of, wait, I thought these I thought this was a state's rights issue, not a federal issue. So there's some there's a little bit of uh, hypocrisy or I'm a little, I'm questioning what's going on there. But but it is interesting how in North Carolina it's kind of a, a different uh, dynamic happening right now. Uh, Greg, we should point out <clears throat> one of the practical effects of this, uh, the new congressional maps. Uh, we had, of course, a sixth district with Lucy McBath as the, the congresswoman from the district and a seventh with Carolyn Bordeaux. Uh, Lucy McBath, of course, an African-American member of Congress. Uh, The way that the maps were redrawn, uh, the 6th is now a much more uh, Republican district. It is unlikely to be a a district that would elect a Democrat or reelect Lucy McBath. So she's now moved over to the 7th to compete with Carolyn Bordeaux, which was a victory in terms of remapping for the Republican Party. And part of the reason the litigants in this case uh, wanted this adjudicated by the federal court. Yeah, it's almost impossible to see a scenario where Republicans don't gain an additional seat in Congress from the Georgia delegation. They already hold an 8-6 majority here. It'll go to 9-5. Um, unless they're barring a uh, unforeseen circumstance, and, and you know, and, and also the, the second district down in in Southwest Georgia is also under scrutiny because it slightly um, it, it slightly changed the demographics of that district. That's a Democratic held district by longtime Congressman uh, Sanford Bishop, so that district gets gets changed a little bit too. But you know, you can tell from the candidates, you know, their thoughts about this case going forward because Lucy McBath is full steam ahead challenging Carolyn Bordeaux. Her campaign's been up and running for months now. They had no, you know, they, had, they, they did not seem, they had no public indication that she was going to change course. Um, so they weren't holding out hope that this, that this uh, lawsuit would suddenly rejigger the maps. Um, Greg, I'm trying to think this through. You pointed out that Judge Jones could be ruling on the merits of this case relatively soon, despite the fact that he says whatever decision he makes won't have an impact on the districts for the primary race. But if he rules that new maps have to be drawn for the general election, I'm not quite sure I understand what can happen when you've had primary candidates elected in a given district whose boundaries could change if uh, the maps have to be redrawn. Now, I know members of Congress don't have to live in their own district. Nevertheless, that could be very complicated as well. And you talk about voter confusion, right? (laughs) It's already hard enough for voters to know what district to live in now. 
especially folks who are just tuning into the political process. Um, but no, the, the judge wrote, and I'm quoting, the court cautions that this is an interim, non-final ruling that should not be viewed as an indication of how the court will ultimately rule on the merits at trial. So um, I'm not sure how that process would be, if it would be a, a judicial redistricting um, or if lawmakers would have a real quick chance at redrawing the districts in a, in, a, in a couple days in a special session and then a new primary, who knows, but it would certainly be a chaotic process. Um, you know what, Steve, it reminds me that preclearance, which the United States Supreme Court brought to an end uh, back almost a decade ago now, yep. uh, would have satisfied, uh, would have uh, unraveled what is a much more complicated matter right now. If these district lines had had to get Justice Department approval, um, we might not be in this uh, strange situation we're in right now, Steve. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And and I I mean, so much of, uh, and we'll probably be talking about this more if, if we talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but it just feels like more and more this gerrymandering is not only a principal cause of the polarization in the country, but it's, it's also kind of the mechanism by which it's perpetuated. And, and so, I mean, of course we're hearing mostly about Republicans, but this is, uh, this is a sin borne by both parties over the years, you know, to the winner, the spoils and, and no spoils are more precious to politicians than the ability to kind of choose their voters as opposed, as opposed to the other way around, you know? Um, yeah, I think that um, Republicans would point to both New York and Illinois as examples sure. of what Democrats c- can do uh, when yeah. they uh, are able to uh, create uh, gerrymandered districts of their own. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, I-, I do want to turn. We're going to talk a little bit later in the show. We will talk about President Biden's uh, State of the Union speech and uh, Georgia reaction to it. But before we get to that, uh, Greg, uh, you were out in Rutledge yesterday for an event that I think many of us found to be odd, to say the least. <laughs> the Democrat, a Republican gubernatorial candidate, David Perdue, was in Rutledge where he told the people who are protesting the building of the Rivian Auto Assembly plant, I stand with you against the George Soros-funded Rivian plant. Uh, Here's an economic development that will bring 7,500 jobs to the state, being opposed by a guy whose entire career until he went into the U.S. Senate was as a corporate CEO. Talk about what this is uh, all about. Yeah, it's surprising to say the least. Um, As you mentioned, it's a $5 billion plant that would be built in East Georgia around the Rutledge area, social circle. Uh, 7,500 jobs, but also thousands of other spinoff jobs. Uh, and, and, and fairly high-paying jobs, from what we understand, um, at the cost of some major public incentives. This, this is expected to be the largest in economic incentive package in the state's history, but also it's the largest economic development project in the state's history. If you've been watching Georgia politics, you know that Democrats and Republicans generally get behind these giant economic development deals because they bring jobs, they, bring, they, they improve the economy. Um, Republicans like to say Georgia is the number one state in the nation to do business. So it was very unique to see uh, David Perdue, a former corporate executive, a string of companies, um, take a stand against Rivian. You know, we had seen congressional candidates in the 10th District area do this as well, and there's certainly a lot of resident backlash. Um, and I've been interviewing, I've been, I've been covering this project for literally almost a year now. 
um, since since we first reported that Rivian was looking at, at Georgia, and I've seen the backlash grow. So this is not some sort of um, turf, you know, artificial turf movement. This is a real, there's real significant backlash. But to see David Perdue take it as a campaign issue, because generally outside of this area, um, it's prob- Rivian is probably viewed as either positive or, eh, you know, voters don't really care <laughs> if, 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 it's, if it's planting roots in, in this community. But in the community, um, it's, it's a major deal. And, and I think the, one of the biggest problems I saw there for Rivian, not the anti-Rivian signs everywhere, but there were very few pro-Rivian, if any at all, pro-Rivian voices, pro-Rivian signs. Just there's, there's no semblance of any pro-Rivian movement. And so David Perdue is trying to tap that by saying that Governor Kemp didn't listen to the people, um, he wasn't hearing their frustrations, and that he he uh, orchestrated this backrooms behind the scenes deal. Now, all all of these economic development deals are generally backrooms behind the scenes deals because of the competition, because you don't want to let South Carolina or Texas or whoever else your rival is know what you're offering. Um, but that was his case, and when I pressed him on it, he kind of doubled down. Raul, I had an interesting conversation, an interesting interview with the Georgia Chamber's Chris Clark about this and the first thing that i walked away is and i've heard this from from multiple people i don't think there's concern about losing the riveting project but you can hear the concern in chris clark's voice about this about david purdue coming against against it mike collins is running in the 10th congressional running against this. they even uh, the chambers even rolled out its own poll they they tried to poll the four major counties that are involved with this and that's going to be jasper newton morgan and walton counties and in their poll i think the one thing that greg was pointing out the number of people who weren't putting the signs for it so the poll that the chamber and again i need to point out it's their poll rolled out is only 54 percent of, uh, of voters had even heard of the project yet so there's that you know probably more people need to hear about the project and that the number within that number 49% supported, 24 again. And again, I think it's noticeable. I, I, as somebody who used to cover that area, I'm not surprised there's opposition. But I think I, along with you know some of the other people who've been working with us, may be surprised at how big the opposition is. Is it a majority of people? No. But it's a pretty big opposition. And, and again, you hear the concern from the chamber, not as much what this means for Rivian now, but what it could mean for future projects. Mm-hmm. Steve? Yeah, I mean, Bill, to your to your question about uh, the cognitive dissonance that this that, that David Perdue's comments um, bring about, I mean, I, a, a business executive, someone who is campaigning as a Republican, who ostensibly is pro-business, one of the, the as Greg said, the, the biggest economic development project in the history of the state, to come out against it, uh, I just I'm trying to figure out what the political calculus is because I understand where he would be sort of um, sort of trying to to attract the votes of the people around Rutledge. But what is this? Does this not leave him open to to attacks from Governor Kemp for being anti-business? I mean, I, I, to say yesterday. Greg, I, I understand that he told reporters that if he becomes governor and he's able to, he would actually kill the project. I mean, that uh, I'm just confused. Yeah, right. that's exactly what he said um, uh, at this event. He was asked right afterwards, you know, what would he do? Would he kill the project? And he said, 
And I'm actually going to pull up the quote right now. Um, but he said, I would not let this deal go if I had a way. And then he talked about how it's still, there's still questions about whether the budget will pass, although let me tell you, the budget will pass. And then he said, I would have fought this until we have local buy-in. So he also said in his speech to the crowd that he would, he would, he would even support a referendum, which again, you know, is not ever happened with economic development projects of this scale or any economic development projects. But I'm, I'm not sure the strategy either, Steve, because as you, as you said, you know, this is a, this is very uh, a hot topic within that community, but outside of that community, it's hard to, to translate this into a, into a, a bigger uh, rallying cry. And, and, and David Perdue tried to, I mean, uh, he, he said, you know, this is an example of the governor not listening and, and, you know, that, that he will listen and, and uh, I'm here to shine light on the fight this community is in right now. I will, I'm here to tell you, I hear you, I see you, I'm standing with you right now. So he's trying to show that he's present and, 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 and trying to exploit the fact that, that Governor Kemp is, 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 an, is an enemy to these, these, these people. Um, but at the same time, you know, will voters in Metro Atlanta or in Savannah or in Macon, you know, bring this up as a rallying cry? I'm not so sure. People are saying... What should you watch for? What is the bellwether of Georgia? And I'm starting to believe the 10th Congressional is becoming that bellwether of, of the race to replace Jody Heiss. Number one, the whole mm. idea of, of what is Trump's effect. Mm. You have Vernon Jones, who has minimal name recognition, probably beyond just Newton and Henry. How well does Vernon Jones do? So you're looking at the power of Donald Trump in an area that has become very pro-Trump. Number two, this argument of business Republicans versus populist Republicans fighting over Rivian, which is in the 10th Congressional. So I, I think on May 25th, no matter who wins, whether it's Purdue, Kemp, or we're going to a runoff, I'm going to be digging into the, those numbers to see what changes. I think there's, you'll see real changes coming out of that area. So uh, before we leave this subject, um, and Steve, I'm going to turn to you first about this. Um, we talked about Rivian and David Perdue stand against it on the show for a while yesterday, and we devoted most of our attention to Purdue, the mystifying decision to oppose uh, this major economic development deal. Um, we did not really talk about the community opposition and what it's based on, but I got an email from a resident out there who I'm not sure wants me to use his name, so I won't. Um, he says he was alarmed uh, by our conversation, and here's what he says. You were all dismissive of the emotional and existential concerns many here have and seem to lump us all together as some Luddite fringe extremists who just can't understand the value of heavy industry, pollution, overcrowding, urban sprawl, desecrated streams and lost agriculture uh, agriculture resources. And he goes on in a very uh, detailed note to talk about some of those things. And then he says, I'm afraid that the involvement of David Perdue and Vernon Jones with our issue may make it easier to dismiss us, especially since Perdue invoked the boogeyman uh, Soros. Um, we didn't explain today, yeah. we did yesterday, that uh, Soros has apparently put a huge... Uh, economic. He's he's now got a big financial stake in Rivian, as much much perhaps as a a billion dollars, and he is of course a shibboleth of uh, the uh, right. But Steve, um, I I think it's worth pointing out 
that the concerns of some of the people out there are genuine and they are trying to be heard. And, and I don't want to dismiss them just because of this uh, strange decision by uh, Purdue to get involved. Well, Bill, this is, this is the problem with, with doing these things in the dark. Um, you know, I, I understand from a competitive nature the need to do it, for sure. But when you don't seek any input, really, from the people who are the neighbors, uh, just the, the unknown can be the scariest thing of all. And, and the fact that they haven't, uh, the, uh, the state of Georgia really didn't do outreach, and the fact that, yeah, there, there are real environmental implications, and, and, and yes, the state has talked about we're going to do some impact studies, and Rivian saying we're going to do some impact studies, that almost felt like an afterthought. And for people who are living around there, who, who escaped to that place because of what it offered them, i.e. sort of this rural um, simple, s- simplified existence uh, away from the hustle and bustle of Metro Atlanta. You know, this is really, really disturbing. At the same time, though, um, the state you would think would be talking about, you know, what has Kia done, you know, down, down in West Point, and and look at the the uh, the economic impact of that. Um, so we're not really seeing. I'm not see- at least I'm not seeing as much of the of the marketing push for what this could do. Uh, as maybe I would have expected by now. It's almost like, look at the size of this thing. It should it should sort of be uh, applauded on its own merits. Uh, Raul, let me give you a last word before we take a break. And I think some of the folks uh, in leadership, especially in Morgan County, were caught off guard by this. Because they had the Facebook data center, because they had the Takeda pharmaceutical plant, which is right in that same area where Rivian will go, I think they felt like... Now we're going to bring a really big project, and, and people are going to love it. And I think that's what they expected to happen. And they just didn't expect this kind of reaction to what's happened here. All right. Um, we got a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind, but we need to get to the first break of the show. Let's do that now, and we'll come back with more. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Before we get back to our discussion, a couple of quick announcements. Number one, this is Newsletter Day here at Political Rewind. Every Wednesday, you can get the Political Rewind newsletter delivered to your inbox. Um, it's a it's something that I work on personally. I try to find what I think, of course, are the big news stories in Georgia over the week. Um, but then always look for something that might add a different kind of value. And, and one of the things, if you subscribe now, is um, there was a remarkable event uh, yesterday at the European Parliament, um, or day before yesterday now. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky gave a very impassioned speech saying, we will never give up, never give in. And the translator who was translating his speech, Zelensky's speech into English, broke down as he was um, trying to uh, uh, convey what Zelensky was saying and um, became very teary-eyed and found it hard to continue. And you can listen to that. And the reason I think it's a value is because we're all watching Ukraine, I think, with a perspective of we're in awe of the courage and the determination we're seeing from the Ukrainian people. So that's part of our newsletter this week. Subscribe by going to gpb.org slash newsletters, and you'll find it there. Then one other note, we're going to continue uh, looking at the Ukraine uh, uh, war 
from a perspective of those who have been involved here in Atlanta with the Sam Nunn School of International Studies. Tomorrow, uh, retired four-star General Phil Breedlove, who was the commander of the U.S. European Command, as well as the 17th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO Forces, is going to join us. There's no one who has a broader understanding of what the map of Europe has looked like and how things are changing, the geopolitical changes that this Russian invasion is bringing about. So General Breedlove will join us uh, to talk about all that and more tomorrow. All right. Uh, thanks for letting me get that in. Now, let's get back to Raul Bali, political reporter for WABE, Steve Fennessy, host of Georgia Today here at GPB, and Greg Bluestein, uh, of course, political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, uh, Greg, uh, it w- there, was interest- there were interesting moments in the president's State of the Union last night. Um, the fact is we have not seen for quite a long time Republicans on one side of the House chamber and Democrats on the other stand up in unison to give an ovation to a president, whether it was Obama, Trump, or now Biden. Uh, and yet that happened several times uh, when Biden uh, uh, strongly, strongly uh, emphasized his support for Ukraine. Uh, that just in and of itself was something we're not used to seeing at State of the Union addresses. Yeah, and a sort of return to normalcy um, after COVID. So it was nice to see lawmakers, even they were seated a seat apart from each other, lawmakers back in the chamber. Uh, that was the first part of the speech was was bipartisanship over Ukraine. The second part of the speech was was a little bit more uh, politically polarized over the his, his plans to stem inflation and, and economic proposals. But the first part of the speech we saw broad bipartisanship, standing ovations. Um, Joe Biden, President Biden, trying to be the great assurer, trying to say that everything is going to be okay. Um, he didn't promise there would be no economic fallout from Ukraine, and and as he should, because there is going to be economic fallout, right? Gas prices are going to continue to to climb higher. Um, there'll be uh, it's hard to see inflation not continuing, even though there are plans to try to stem it. Uh, you know, the global supply chain is going to continue to have complications. Um, so, but. His message to Americans was the U.S. is fighting in its own way. <laughs> the U.S. is not going to commit troops um, to the Ukraine, but it, the sanctions are starting to work. And as he said, uh, and this was sort of an off script, um, it was not part of his prepared remarks. But I'm just paraphrasing, but he said um, Putin has no idea what's coming to him. So there's even more down the road for Vladimir, P- Vladimir Putin's re- regime. Um, Steve, uh, it. it What's interesting about the Republican response is that it is one of the few examples we're seeing since the 2020 election, actually, of Republicans being willing to uh, take a stand separate from Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been remarkably quiet since his earlier remarks about uh, how, how smart Vladimir Putin is, what a genius he is in terms of the way he's handled U- Ukraine. But there's no question how he feels which is that he he trusts Putin more than he trusts the American government. And Republicans haven't gone there with him except for a handful. Uh, yeah, except for a handful, and they've been pretty vocal. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, that's, to me, it looks like a, a throwback to the Republican Party we used to recognize, uh, maybe going back to the Reagan years even, when, you know, 
who fa- he famously, of course, called the, the Soviet Union at the time uh, the evil empire. Um, but over the years, uh, there's been sort of this faction, uh, small faction, but appears to be growing within the Republican Party that seems to be embracing the authoritarian tactics of somebody like Putin. Um, and and that they're getting more and more of a platform. And I, I think um, I, I'm curious to see what sort of the Republican Party writ large sort of does does with that, what Kevin McCarthy will do with that. Um, all right, Raul. So uh, having said all of that, we should say that 14th District Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene did, in fact, choose to make her displeasure with President Biden's speech. Uh, known. She, on two occasions, stood up and shouted out in the chamber. Um, the first time when he was talking about immigration policy, she stood and shouted out, build the wall. And according to some of the reporting I've read, apparently thought she might be able to get a chant going, build the wall from other Republicans. That didn't happen. Um, and then she uh, yelled something out when uh, Biden talked about his uh, plans for uh, uh, an opportunity, a way in which he'd like to protect transgender uh, uh, young people. Uh, and uh, uh, she basically had some, shouted out something in response to that as well. Raul? Look, the people who like Congresswoman Taylor Green love her, and the people who don't like her don't like her. Um, and, you know, after her appearance at the uh, at the uh, White Nationalist Conference down in Orlando, I pulled a number of Republican lawmakers to decide to talk to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, and and they uh, they all had strong opinions when my microphone wasn't rolling, and when I turned the microphone on, well, for the the handful who would even talk to me, you know, very uh, kind of uh, you know basic comments, kind of what what Steve was getting at. When it comes down to this, she's very popular within her district. Um, and she is popular within a faction of the Republican Party. Um, and, and that's the part that some Republicans won't say out loud. The other interesting thing that Republicans the state capitol are saying is one of the reasons you don't challenge Marjorie Taylor Greene publicly is, A, she can recruit a candidate to run against you for this year's election, and more importantly, she can help fund somebody to run against them. And so that's that's probably one of the reasons you don't hear as much pushback from Republicans is A, that concern, and B, there is an element within the party or within that electorate that that, that supports what she does. Steve? Yeah, I'm going to sound like a broken record on this because I know we discussed it a bit earlier. But, you know, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there are exhibits A and B of what you get with gerrymandering. When you carve out districts that ensure a dominance by any one party, then the true election becomes the primary, not the general. And then it becomes a contest of who can say and do and advocate the most extreme things, which has always been the dynamic in, in primaries for both parties. But when there's no real opponent in the general, uh, at least no opponent who stands a shot anyway, then you're going to get outliers like Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and, and so they they become elevated and then and then they take up all the oxygen in the room and and like you said bill earlier this is by no means limited to the republican party uh this is a a, a democratic a dynamic as well uh but i i mean i think it's it's it all goes back to 
to redistricting to me. Um, Greg, I want to keep talking about this for a minute, but but I want to, with you, talk about an aspect of this that I think is always important for us to uh, clarify. I guarantee you we're going to get comments from people. They may already be posting them on Facebook right now. Uh, saying, why are you talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene? Don't keep talking about her. You're just giving her attention. I get that. I do get that. But the fact of the matter is, as Raul has already pointed out, she's very popular in her district. And whether we like it or not, she is becoming a major voice of the right wing in the Republican Party and does have power to anoint candidates in various races she is talking, has talked about challenging Kevin McCarthy, uh, who wants to be speaker, finding a different candidate. So, Greg, my point is, while I get it, you'd like to ignore somebody whose extremist views are, uh, the, are the way hers are. But the fact of the matter is, we have to talk about her. Um, we have to expose who she is and what she believes, Yes. Yeah, I don't think we need to talk about every single one of her antics, but, but after a week like this, right. we do. She's one of Georgia's 14 House members. She has no clout in, in the Capitol, as we saw from her attempt at um, trying to have that chant against Joe Biden. I mean, several of her colleagues told her to sit down, and she did. Uh, but but still, outside those walls, she does. She's she's on the national campaign trail. We've covered her in Iowa. Um, she's She's gone all over the South. And, of course, in Georgia, um, she still has – um, some clout in Georgia politics as well. She's holding a rally this weekend that Senator, former Senator David Perdue is appearing at, despite the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene just went to this pro-Putin white nationalist rally. But Herschel Walker decided to pull out of it in the immediate aftermath of all that coverage. So you can tell that you know so her antics are wearing thin with some of her Republican colleagues. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan had a very forceful message um, didn't mention her by name, but her, clearly she was the subtext of his comments. And it wasn't just him. State Senator Russ Goodman, one of the most conservative Republicans under the Gold Dome, stood up there and said it was unfathomable for any any Republicans, any any Georgians at all, to be uh, kowtowing and cozying up to the pro-Putin pro uh, part of the party. Um, so, you know, there's been some significant pushback. The other, the other factor is, you know, you're not going to see Governor Kemp, you're not going to see um, other prominent Republicans call her out by name because they don't want to make an enemy out of her. And you saw that in 2020 as well. I don't know if there'll be active efforts to court her support like we saw from Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins in 2020, where they were jockeying for her endorsement very openly. Um, but you also don't want to see anyone try to get on her wrong side. You know, Raul, your comment that yeah. – go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. I was just going to say that your comment about talking to people who are willing to, uh, off the record, uh, make uh, candid remarks about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but they won't do it on the record, reminds me of the way we have talked during his presidency to any number of Republicans in Congress and, and really in state Republican politics who uh, behind, you know, are willing to say, oh, my God, the guy's a disgrace. They'll talk to you about that off the record, but they never do it on the record. Same kind of situation. Exactly. And, and, and I've, I've shared that story of, of, of Republicans who, I, who will say one thing about Donald Trump before I heard the microphone, turn the microphone on and, and it's something different. The microphone is not. Here's the reality. With 
the state with, with Georgia statewide elections likely being very close, and Republicans and Democrats are going to need every single vote for their statewide candidates in November. They can't push anybody away, even people they disagree with, or even people they well, I try to say abhor what they say. They just can't push any votes away. Um. Steve, just one, let me throw one other thing in. Uh, Last Friday, Marjorie Taylor Greene was the headline speaker at an extremist right-wing organization uh, run by a guy named Nick Fuentes, who the Department of Justice uh, calls a white supremacist. Uh, In introducing her, uh, uh, Fuentes said uh, this, quote, do you want to know what our secret sauce is here it's these young white men, because, of course, the conference was attended by just a bunch of white guys. Uh, that's what we call our secret sauce. He then went on to suggest that comparing Vladimir Putin to Hitler is a good thing. He laughed and then says, I shouldn't have said that. But he did lead the crowd in a, in a chant of uh, Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, and uh, she claims she doesn't support all of that sort of thing. And I think the one thing, the reason I'm going to, now let me turn it over to you. She did get pushback. Kevin McCarthy called her appearance there appalling. Mitch McConnell pushed back uh, strongly. So there are now Republicans who are beginning to recognize that those extremists in their own party are, could be damaging as the election approaches. Uh, I agree to, to a point, but I think what's what's different now, it seems to me, is that comments from Republican leaders like Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell don't seem to have the traction that they once did. Um, the, it doesn't seem to be starting uh, an avalanche of condemnations across the board. And so uh, so we can hear from somebody like Jeff Duncan or something, and you're, they're kind of waiting for for other people to get on, on board that. But what you're hearing a lot of times is crickets. And, and one of the things I want to piggyback off what Raul said, um, I was just uh, looking at, at the, the popular vote in the 2016 election versus the 2020 election. And uh, I, I don't know, Donald Trump lost, um, he lost in 2020, but he also got 11 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, which um, is kind of remarkable. There, so I think the Republicans understand that not only, of course, may, may he be the, the standard bearer in a couple of years uh, again in the presidential election, but he still has a huge amount of support. And so to potentially alienate um, some of those who represent the more extremist wing of, of Trumpism, they, they do at their own peril. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show, and we will come back and talk more with our panel on today's Political Rewind. Uh, Greg Bluestein, I do want to spend a couple more minutes on uh, the President's State of the Union speech last night, and and here's what I'm going to ask you to help me with. Um, President Biden, in addition to the Ukrainian uh, 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 remarks, as you say, he talked about inflation. He said, yes, we are facing inflation. He talked about ways in which he hopes they are going to be able to bring it down. Um, But he talked uh, about uh, immigration a little bit, although, as we heard on our show yesterday, uh, Hispanic voters are just 
totally disenchanted with him because he has not uh, been doing enough on the border, they believe. Um, but he did try to bring the Democratic Party at a time when his numbers are so bad a little bit uh, back to the middle. And I'm thinking about the fact that he made remarks about police. Let's listen to what he said and the significance of that. The answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. I ask Democrats and Republicans alike to pass my budget and keep our neighborhoods safe. So, Greg, clearly trying to steer the Democratic ship back away from uh, those who, uh, in that hot summer of 2020 uh, and, and 21 and 20, uh, 2020, particularly, uh, we're talking about defunding uh, the police. The, the question is, is it too late because Republicans have already uh, cemented the defund the police uh, uh, label on Democrats? Yeah, it was a striking moment because four different times in that span of, what, 10 seconds, he said, fund the police. Now, it's not going to stop Republican attacks. You're going to hear from Governor Kemp, David Perdue, Herschel Walker, whoever the, the top Republican candidates are in November, you're going to hear them say that Democrats want to support defund the police, even though there's no evidence of that from any of the top tier Democratic candidates in in Georgia. Um, But this was a striking example of how Joe Biden is trying to move that party, move Democrats toward the middle on some of these issues, and not just over law enforcement. We also heard that over COVID policies. Uh, He signaled a sort of return to normalcy. Um, He talked about how uh, you know, the culture wars over COVID policy should come to an end. Uh, let's stop looking at it as partisan dividing line. Let's start looking at it as a god-awful disease, um, something we didn't hear um, from, from him or from, from President Trump uh, during, his four, during his latter year in office either. So um, we're, we're starting to hear Democrats see that these are going to be November issues and try to uh, stamp them out as early as they can, even though they'll still be November issues. <laughs> Um, so another example of his uh, trying to steer the ship back, uh, Steve, is he insisted that his top priority is getting prices under control amid uh, surging inflation. Um, but he called on lowering the cost of drug prices and endorsing the push to cap the cost of insulin at $35 a month so everyone can afford it, was the quote uh, in that part of the speech. This, of course, Steve, is a, uh, are two issues that Raphael Warnock is uh, standing behind uh, in, in right now. Is make, or Warnock is making these two issues uh, major parts of uh, his agenda in Washington. Yeah, and interestingly, uh, Raphael Warnock was not in the crowd last night. Uh, apparently he'd been uh, on the hustings here in Georgia, so couldn't, couldn't make it. Uh, but yeah, I think that as we sort of emerge, uh, hopefully continue to emerge, from the pandemic, the the question of of, of health care is going to become an even even more major one. And so this this feels like, um, you know, Joe Biden is, is threading a needle here. Um, he's trying to um, <clears throat> cater to to the to the to the Democratic wing of the party 
um, you know, with things like his announcement of his Supreme Court pick. Um, but then he's also trying to uh, appeal to the talking points and, and priorities of, of Republicans when he says things like fund the police. So it'll be interesting to see where, where it goes. Raul? Um, you know, Greg talking about that this is these are the issues that Democrats are, are trying to push. We're seeing Republicans, for example, at the state house trying to keep the COVID issues on the plate. You know, the mask, you know, what's going on with the mask bill, which would allow school systems to do mask mandates, but parents would have to be allowed to opt out. Or uh, or the legislation, you know, stopping public schools from mandating the COVID vaccine. Republicans, especially here in the state of Georgia, are trying to keep those on the table through the legislative session into the election cycle. All right. Um, we're basically just about out of time for today's uh, Political Rewind. A couple of quick uh, headlines I can share with you before we leave. Uh, Sonny Perdue will be the next chancellor of the University System of Georgia. He was approved yesterday. Uh, there are people who think he'll be a great manager of that system and others who think he has no experience in uh, academia and therefore will be a little bit lost and who are worried that his conservative uh, 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 ideology may come into play with the universities. Um, the, uh, the legislature has passed constitutional uh, carry. Um, it will uh, be, uh, Greg, constitutional carry has passed one uh, body. It isn't all the way through yet, right? Yeah, it will remain to be a big deal. And there's a pro-gun rally at the Capitol later on today. Ah, good. I'm glad you mentioned that. All right. That's it. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. So, Greg Bluestein, so happy to have you as my partner on the Wednesday show. Steve Fennessy, thank you for being with us. Come back more often to Raul Bali. I'm glad you've become a part of our team of analysts on Political Rewind. Thanks so much for being here, too. Thanks to all of you who are listening to the show today. Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmis Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger. As always, I appreciate everything you do to make Political Rewind work the way it does. We'll be back again with a new show tomorrow. Again, four-star retired General Philip Reedlove will talk with us about Ukraine and uh, much more. Until then, take care, stay healthy, see you tomorrow. <laughs>